May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The journey to Jerusalem has been completed. Jesus has made his way from Galilee, way in the northern part of Israel, to the city of Jerusalem in the south. The city where the Jewish temple was um, was constructed and, and the center of Jewish power and the, the, the centerpiece of the whole idea of the Jewish world in Jerusalem. This was the goal. This is the place that he's been going in Luke's gospel and now he's arrived. And you remember what he said he would find when he arrived in the city. He said, they're going to throw a great big festival for me, crown me to king, and I'm going to bring peace to the entire world. That is not what he said. And if you thought that's what he said, that's not what he said. What did he say? He said, when he arrives, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day rise again. This is what he said he would find when he arrived in Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem would not be hospitable to Jesus. So when we get to the end of chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, um, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and here's what Luke says at the beginning of chapter 20, right uh, before our lesson today, but just before it. One day, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, and in the preaching in the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up to him and said, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority? The principal players in the drama are all in place. Did you hear it? The chief priests and the elders, the scribes, these are the people that Jesus had predicted months earlier would be the ones who would take his life. And here they are, he's in the city, and they've come up to him and to ask him, who gave you this authority to do what you're doing? But of course it isn't just a matter of him showing up and then immediately going after him, arresting him and murdering him. I mean, religious leaders don't typically do this. Meet somebody and say, oh, I don't like you, let's kill you. I mean, that doesn't happen right off, does it? It it takes a while to sort of work up to that. (laughs) Remember that Jesus is a peasant preacher. You know, he's not wearing the best-looking clothes. He looks like a peasant because he is one. He's self-proclaimed preacher. He's not an institutional clergyman. He's, um, he's not a university graduate. He has no seminary degree. He's uncredentialed in most of the ways that his contemporaries would think about credentials. He doesn't look the part. Oh, yeah, maybe he could get a, you know, a, a, a preaching and teaching gig up north in that backwater Galilee where they have a hick accent. And sure, that he might get away with that, but not here in the city, not in the center of, of Jewish religious life. He's probably not going to find a real audience unless he does something sort of spectacular. He actually does something quite spectacular. His probably greatest spectacle, it's it's recorded in all four Gospels, and it takes place in the city of Jerusalem. I don't know if you remember it, but there's a story about Jesus going into the temple. And there was a a sort of market-like atmosphere going on. Uh, Men were selling these animals to be used as a sacrifice. 
And, and people were coming from all over the world at this time. They were making pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they would go there to this temple. And, and out there in the courts, they could buy these animals that they would later use as ritual worship sacrifice. And, and not only were there men selling them, but there were also other men who were out there and they were exchanging currency. The regular Roman currency that people bought and sold with everywhere in the country with a special temple currency that was only good in the temple courts and could only be used to buy these sacrificial animals. And Jesus goes in and he begins to overturn the tables. John's gospel, he says he makes a whip out of cords and begins cracking the whip. In the other gospels, he turns over the tables. I mean, this is a sort of violent, extreme scene, isn't it? And he gets everybody's attention. Everybody's, especially the priests who oversaw this entire enterprise. They're really frustrated because this is sort of a, a condemnation of them. It's an embarrassment to them. He, he's, he's saying that their, their, their work and their ministry is unfaithful. What they're doing is that they're lining their pockets from the earnings of the poor. They're using religion to exploit poor people and making themselves rich. It's a shakedown scheme. And Jesus is angry about it. And, and he, he, he causes this great spectacle. You have to imagine it, though. This poor guy in these trashy clothes, you know, this not, not a respectable kind of religious clergyman. He doesn't have his collar on. He doesn't look the part. And, and here he is tearing up these tables. And people must have thought, what guts, you know, what boldness, maybe what, what madness perhaps, but what zeal for God. This man has real zeal for God. And I, I imagine that the, the priest... Looked at him and think, maybe we underestimated this fellow. Maybe we should take him a little more seriously. Backing up just a little bit, in Luke's gospel, he begins his travel narrative in chapter 9. The passage that I just told you about is in, at the, in chapter uh, 19. So, uh, ten chapters, a big chunk of Luke's gospel, is made up in this travel narrative. And, and Jesus is going from town to town village to village, and every place he goes, there's these crowds that gather. Crowds come around and they, they want to hear him teaching and preaching. And they come because they bring their sick and the dying and they want him to heal them. And I imagine some people show up because, you know, they didn't have television. And, and so, like, this is a scene. I want to go find out what's happening. It's the biggest event that's going on in the town today. And so they go to these places. And, and so the crowds are coming and, and the fans are growing and the legend is getting bigger and bigger. But they're also his detractors. They also show up in the crowds. It's not just the fan base. It's also the people who are against them. And the ones who show up in the small towns and villages have these long sideburns down the sides of their face. They wear this distinctive religious clothing. They're not clergy people. They're lay people. They're, they're regular, um, you know, working class people. But they're super strict. Super religious, super traditionalist. They, they, um, they are self-appointed religious police. <laughs> if they see their neighbor, you know, cooking an egg on the Sabbath, they'll call them out on it. You know, they'll, they'll judge them. You know, the, don't judge me. Like, they did not believe in that. They judged anybody who didn't do what they were supposed to. Every town that Jesus entered, these men followed him around. 
they were interested in religion, and I think they were interested in what Jesus was teaching, but there was something about him. He was way too understanding. He was way too lenient. Way too liberal with his mercy. He just, you know, dispensing that rather rather uh, unjudiciously. And so they followed him around. These men, they're called Pharisees, and they wanted to embarrass him. And so everywhere he went, it was Bible trivia day. <laughs> I, know the, I remember one time I was with um, one of my professors. I was an undergrad student, and we went to this coffee shop. And there was this farmer who, who says to my professor, who was the head of the theology department, he says, Hey, Dr. Case, how are you? And Dr. Case says to this farmer, you know, hey, Bob, how are you? Whatever his name was. And, and he said, I have a question to ask you. How many of each animal did Moses take into the ark? And Dr. Case said, well, he took two of each. And the old farmer said, no, Moses didn't take any of them. It was Noah. And, you know, everybody, all the farmers sitting around were ready for this one. And, and, and Dr. Case said, I knew he said Moses. I just didn't want to embarrass him. But the whole thing was a scheme, you know, a, a joke. This is the Pharisees only not so kind. They want to embarrass Jesus all the time. And if you've been with this at all, as we kind of go on through these chapters, you know that what Jesus often does is he turns the tables. He shows the, the Pharisees for what they are, frauds. They're trying to embarrass him when really they should be embarrassed. But the thing about the Pharisees that they had going for them is, is they really did share a lot of the same ideas that Jesus had. And in particular, there was this one big idea. And it goes like this. That sometime in the future, in the very near future, God's going to bring human history to an end. He's going to step in. He's going to stop what's going on. He's going to place Israel at the top of you know, the human paradigm. And all the nations are going to come to Israel. And they're all going to bow down before Israel's God. And those who, have been, uh, who were faithful and who had died, God is going to resurrect from the dead. He's going to raise them up. And all the evil people who have died, he's going to raise them up so that he can judge them. The resurrection. The Pharisees and Jesus believe in this central hope, the resurrection. This is a poor people's belief, right? I mean, that the, the, the rich and the powerful are always going to have the upper hand. That someday God's going to set the world to rights. And poor people believe this because they needed this hope. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the rich clergy do not believe this. They think this is a sham. They think this is just a pie in the sky. Here's what they think. They think, look, we're, we are wealthy and powerful. The Romans put us in place. Therefore, the Romans must be God's gift. The Romans are, are God's gift to the world. It, it put us in place, and, and what we need to do is get along with the program. There's no resurrection. That's just pie in the sky silliness. All that little background. Jesus goes in and, and into the city and then the Sadducees, these are the fellows who don't believe in the resurrection. Listen to what it, the, the lesson again. Some of the Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if, any, if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married, died childless, then the second and the third married her, and so in the same way all seven died childless. Finally the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. It's a theological question, isn't it? 
This isn't just Bible trivia. This is systematic theology trivia. All right, we want you to think through this. Tell me, whose wife is she going to be? You have to remember that in the ancient world, family was security. There was no social security. There was no government safety net. There was none of that. Family was security. If a woman died as a widow without children, she had no real hope of making it in the world. And so the, the law prescribed that, that a man's brother should marry this woman. And so this is what happens. This woman marries, and she, she marries seven times, and she dies childless. And in order to embarrass Jesus, the Sadducees say, whose property will she be in the resurrection? This is a real question, isn't it? Whose property will she be? And Jesus' answer is in the resurrection there is no more marriage. But humans will be like the angels. And second of all, God is not the God of the dead, but God is the God of the living. Jesus points out a passage in Exodus chapter 3 where Moses um, sees the Lord at the burning bush. There sees this uh, bush on fire and God speaks. He doesn't see God, but he, God speaks from the bush. And what does he say? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, present tense, that God. The embarrassment didn't work. Jesus flips the tables on the Sadducees just like he had with the Pharisees. Their trap backfires. And all this is somewhat interesting, I suppose, on an academic level. But as I'm kicking around this text this week, I'm thinking, but, but what about us? What about Hudson, you know, Holy Trinity Parish um, in the year of our Lord, 2019? We don't practice love or right marriage anymore. A lot of this stuff is, is this all just passe? Well, I think it has said several things. And the first thing is about married life. That married life is for time, not eternity. For people who have had great marriages, or for children who have watched their parents in a great marriage, um, this is sometimes difficult to accept. That marriage is for time, not eternity. And I hate to bring good people bad news. But um, time, marriage is for this time, and not for eternity. And even if graves are parallel, in the resurrection, lives will not be. I suppose for those who are in bad marriages or have been in bad marriages, it's a bit of good news. Um, and even for single persons, that marriage is for this side of eternity. And for those who weren't married, you know what? There's a better relationship that you've already begun to experience that you would experience into eternity. But even more than what it says about marriage... I think what the Lord intimates about resurrection is critical to what we think. Because I go to a lot of funerals in my time. In 20-some years of being in ordained ministry, I can't even tell you how many funerals I've done. And always grandma was in heaven. It doesn't come from the pulpit, it comes from the pews. And it, it comes in the, the, the time where I'm in the, with the family. And, and, and when we go to the meal afterward, where we're eating fried chicken and potato salad. Yes, in a way, Grandma is with heaven, with God in heaven. But that is not the Christian hope. We believe in the resurrection of the body. This is what we say in our creeds. We believe in the bodily resurrection. That we will be raised from the dead. And you're like, well, how is that possible? You know, what if somebody is um, 
uh, you know, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Cremated, yeah. I knew it was a sea. What if someone's cremated? What if they're buried at sea and they turn into fish food or whatever? I don't know. The God who brought everything together from nothing can certainly bring together those particles back into existence. Resurrection of the body is the Christian hope. And this is a poor person's hope, and it's still a poor person's hope. Because I don't care how much money any of us has. We are poor people. Because we cannot buy some things. Yet we can buy a better car or a better house or better food. But you cannot buy a better peace of mind. You cannot buy a sense of, of security and, and utter peace. You cannot buy your way out of anxiety or depression. These are impossible things to do away with. So we are all poor. We all suffer. And we all have this hope that bodily resurrection is our end time victory. That Christ will raise us from the dead. And in, be, in between time, whilst we're waiting on resurrection, those who have gone before and those of us who may go before that resurrection day, we do get to experience the presence of the Lord immediately. That he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And as St. Paul said, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. I think immediately. To be absent with the body is to be immediately present with the Lord. And to know him and to enjoy that. This is our hope as well. I know that many of us know that Jesus suffered and died upon a cross. And that he died for us. But I want to remind you that he also willingly entered into trap after trap after trap. Intellectual arguments. Not for his own sake. But so that he could remind us of our hope. I think that's very good news. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.